Let's now turn in the, um, in the back of our books of praise to uh, the summary of Scripture, which we find in uh, Lord's Day 51. Lord's Day 51, question 126. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined, wholeheartedly, to forgive our neighbor. Beloved in the Lord, this sermon was actually written around the time of the Reformation, and this is unique in that through the Reformation, it's really this catechism question and answer, this, uh, this catechism, along with, along with others that teach about imputation, about justification, the free gift that we have in Jesus Christ, through the Reformation, God reminded His people of these things, that the entirety of our salvation is based on Jesus Christ and what He did is based on grace. Even seeking His forgiveness has nothing to do with our request, but His work in us. Catechism students will remember, the Spirit works that faith in us. And the Catechism reminds us of this moment of history, and we hear the hope of the author of the Catechism in his explanation of this petition. God will not hold our sins against us. God will not hold the evil that still clings to us. We, the wretched sinners, are contrasted with the exceeding greatness of the love of God and causing us to share in the righteousness of Christ. The reason we remember Reformation Day is, is not because of the greatness of the Reformers, but the greatness of God in reminding His people of His grace. So the best way to honor and remember the Reformers is to remember the goodness and kindness of our God in sending us our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, Forgive us, O Lord. First, we'll see God's free gift, and then we'll see, my, I've titled my second point, grace upon grace, because in that grace that God gives to us, we also show forgiveness to one another. The troubles of life, apathy, even an unhealthy focus on other doctrines can cause us to forget or to diminish the essential teaching of grace, which is the foundation for the entirety of the Christian doctrine. My sins are forgiven in Christ. 
While we may worry about money, about taking care of our families, meeting budgets, more, argue about the best way to submit to the Ten Commandments, worry about our worship practices, work through the best way to understand fundamental doctrines, all these things do not matter if our hearts are not moved to pray this petition to God. We need to be right with God. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We fundamentally rely on God's gift of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the fundamental calling of the Christian is to express that same love in our willing patience, love, and forgiveness of one another. Naturally, we forget this. And we must continue to be reminded. The first angel or pastor in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, is warned about losing his first love. He's so careful to keep the church pure, but he forgets the greatest matters of the law, mercy and justice. He forgets the fundamental grace that is foundational to the work of God in his servants. And in forgetting... He's no longer moved by that overflowing love toward the God who loved him and toward the neighbor whom God has chosen to love. Paul calls his work the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. His work is to encourage people to pray this prayer with the confidence that God does forgive sins. He does this through the word of Christ crucified. He does this through the signs of baptism and Lord's Supper that point to the same overflowing and free love of God. These are all meant to encourage us to know, to be confident that Christ really does forgive all sins freely and without any of our own work. This request is ultimately part of God's work of reconciliation. We, call, we come to Him not for the first time, not for the second, but for the thousandth time upon many times, approaching based on Christ's blood. As John says, for those who sin, and he who says he has no sin is a liar, says John, but for those who sin... We know we have an advocate before the Father, a propitiation, an emblem of the work He did for us. We also see that word propitiation in, uh, in Romans 3. The Greek word for propitiation goes back to the structure of the temple. It's used for the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was set before God. Christ is our living mercy seat whom we may continually come for mercy. And Christ's work of reconciliation can be summed up in three different parts. Repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. That's basically the three parts of any reconciliation. So repentance... Just as we depend on Christ for bread, for our daily dependencies, so we depend on Him for our spiritual life. We recognize that in ourselves. We cannot have spiritual life because of the sin that remains in us. Sin, ultimately, is the thing that separates us from God. And because of that, we must continually come to God in repentance. 
That's why we have a prayer of repentance every Sunday. In ourselves, we can do nothing. We can do nothing good. Now, Adam, before the fall, had to depend for God on bread, just as we do. But Adam did not need to seek the forgiveness of God. That's a reality that only can come after the fall. That is why the catechism casts us in such a horrific light. Wretched sinners. The catechism witnesses to the teaching of Scripture. While, thanks be to God, we are no longer counted as sinners, we do habitually sin. He who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. By using this sort of language, the catechism recognizes that there is a part of ourselves that we must put to death. We must be putting to death. We must be killing. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's why we continue to pray this prayer. It's part of that process of repentance. It's part of that process of killing sin. We must continually recognize sins in ourselves. The Word of God comes to us day by day and sheds light on on new, to us, ways in which we like to evade the command of the Lord. What God wants from us and works in us through His Holy Spirit is the prompt recognition of the pride, envy, lust, and greed that remain in our hearts, the evil lust that the New Testament so often speaks of. So daily we come before God, recognizing again and again our failures to live according to His holy law. We fail again and again in our pride and our lust. Romans 3 unveils the ugliness of the human heart. And if we cannot recognize ourselves in these words, we either don't have enough experience with ourselves or with others, or we have failed to understand ourselves, failed to understand how deeply sinful we can be. Paul's point is that this is the common human experience, both of Jew and Greek, of both believers and unbelievers. The difference is that the believers recognize that this is their wicked nature and seek the free gift that is given in Jesus. And by that gift, of course, we can begin that transformation that Christ worked in us, Christ formed in us, that Paul talks about in Galatians 3.19. We often look at history and we can't believe the evil that regular, run-of-the-mill people get involved in. How did the slave trade happen? How did Christian Britain treat the First Nations so badly? How did Christian Russia become the host for one of the most evil ideologies the world has seen? How did Christian Germany cause the Holocaust? We think, I wouldn't participate. I would have stood against that evil. But statistically speaking, you probably wouldn't have stood against these things. We all have these sorts of evil in us. Given the right circumstances, we are the bloodthirsty murderer, the rapist, the whore, and the sodomite. We are fooling ourselves if we think we don't. 
We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John Owen again, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so we cry out in our lives again and again, Lord, have mercy upon us. And the good news is that the Lord does have mercy. We pray, O Lord, forgive us, because the Lord, out of his wide and wondrous love, forgives. He does not count these sins against us. He does not count the sin that remains within us. He does not count that our sinful hearts touch even our prayers. He does this for the sake of Christ's blood. That's why Christ's blood is the most precious thing in the world. And that precious gift was poured out beyond measure for us so that we can drink from the cup of judgment and be safe because Christ died on the cross. And in this, God begins the process of reconciliation. Christ offered forgiveness while we were still estranged from God. Through faith, we can come to Him and receive all the benefits of the cross. And in Him, we begin that process of reconciliation as through the Spirit, more and more sin is uncovered so that we more and more hate ourselves and at the same time, more and more pursue the righteousness of Christ. The glory of this all is that even while we continue to experience the remnants of our sinful nature in our lives, even while we battle against sin and are engaged in crucifying that sin, we at the same time are fully approved of and received into the courts of God fully approved of and received into the courts of God. God treats us as if there's no sin in us even now while we still must come to Him in repentance for sin. God has fully accepted us in answer to our prayers, even though He knows we must be renewed and reconciled through the Spirit of Christ Jesus. And that brings us to our second point, grace upon grace. The teaching of Christ to pray for forgiveness has an interesting clause at the end. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this seems to fly in the face of what we've already heard. Isn't God's grace given freely without any of our merit or contribution? But that's not the intent of Christ's teaching in this phrase. Rather, this phrase is meant to encourage the Christian in his confidence that God will forgive his sins because that forgiveness is evidenced in his forgiveness of his fellow man. We can tell that this is how we ought to interpret this because the teaching of Christ in Scripture is that our forgiveness of one another is based on Christ's forgiveness. Paul establishes this pattern for the church of Colossians, forgiving one another even as Christ has forgiven you. This means that this prayer too is part of every stage of the Christian life, and Christians can approach God confidently because by the grace of the Holy Spirit, He has shown forgiveness to His neighbor. 
Martin Luther suggested that those who fail to forgive others do not really want God to forgive them. They are looking to excuse themselves rather than recognize the reality of their state before God. Because if they did desire the forgiveness of God, they would love to forgive others. Now, while this doesn't take away the difficulty of going through the reconciliation process with one another, recognizing this is important. If we really experience God's grace, we will share it with others. It's fascinating that of all the good works we are called to do, it is the one that our Lord, this is the one that our, that our Lord singles out as the service that most clearly demonstrates that the grace of God is working in us. Right? Faith naturally produces good works. And this good work clearly demonstrates that God is working in us. It's not how excellent we are at following every little detail of Scripture. It's not about having the best theology or doing the sacraments in the right manner or how much we give our lives to mission. Yes, prayer is the most important part at work of thankfulness, according to the Catechism, but we can't judge the heart. It is the act of a willingness to forgive that is most expressive of the work of God in us to those around us that we are hospitable even to our enemies, even as Christ was hospitable to his enemies. I was reminded of this again in a story about a Christian man in Japan. His daughter was raped and killed. This Christian man had the opportunity to confront the man who had done this horrible thing. So he went to the jail and he talked to him. He confronted him. And through his willingness to forgive, he brought the murderer and the rapist to Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is living out the gospel at its most radical and extreme. However, when we think about the immeasurable love and mercy of God toward us, these deeds are small compared to our own estrangement from God. Truth is, we have people who do all sorts of things to us, and we rightly desire justice. God has given us the civil magistrate to accomplish a certain measure of that justice. But as the church, our first desire is to extend the forgiveness of Christ, especially to one another. This is a mark of the church, according to Colossians, forgiving one another. Because justice, the punishment for the sin that my brother has sinned against me, has been placed on the cross of Christ. His blood is more precious than my feud. This is the hardest calling of the Christian and is, in essence, our sacrifice to Christ, our giving ourselves to one another for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's the ultimate expression of His love. Like God's forgiveness... Forgiveness between one another also takes two willing parties. One party must recognize the need for repentance, and the other must recognize the need for forgiveness. 
just as Christ offers forgiveness, but those are forgiven who receive that through faith. Problems arise when one party is not willing to forgive or one party is not willing to repent. Therefore, the Catechism commands the attitude of forgiveness. Just as Christ is set up as a propitiation for all mankind, while only certain men receive his forgiveness, so the Christian is made in Christ a source of forgiveness. As the Catechism says, we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. That should be our attitude. When somebody does something against us, we need to have this attitude, fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Reconciliation is not complete between two parties if there's no repentance or no forgiveness. But even so, as Christians, we are called to that full commitment to forgiveness. Recognizing this helps us avoid the seeds of bitterness that can rise up, can rise up toward our neighbor. Even if my neighbor does not repent or does not forgive, I am still to have this wholehearted commitment to forgiveness. And this also helps us work through the fact that there are people who are more sensitive and less sensitive in the church, people who are very conscientious and not so conscientious, people who are more advanced in spirituality and less advanced, the stronger and the weaker, those who love to study and those who love to do. So even if our brother is not repenting and we might confront him and he does not do the right thing in our eyes or even does not recognize the right thing, we are still fully committed to forgiveness. Now we might have to establish certain boundaries between our neighbor and us, but again, we need to have this heart that we see in our Lord and Savior. We must avoid pettiness in this. We understand the importance of forgiveness in the big things, but it's often the little things that slowly pull us away from the beauty of church life that's described in Colossians 3. People feel offended for all sorts of reasons. We must recognize that at least part of this is our own pettiness. We tend to prioritize ourselves, and we're very petty gods, demanding recompense for all sorts of sins against us, perceived or otherwise. There's a victim culture in our world that we must be careful about participating in ourselves. People can form little churches of the aggrieved within the broader local church. At the same time, we must be careful not to be callous toward others' needs. Sometimes sins that are never dealt with are covered up, and they become a fly in the ointment. So all appears to be peace, but there's no true reconciliation. This can happen in marriages, families, friends, and churches. It's better to speak and risk breaking the peace than to continue in this way. You see, just as unconfessed sin can pull the individual away from God, if you're not dealing with a sin in your life, you can be pulled away from God. Unconfessed sin also within the church can destroy churches. 
The best way, and all the Scripture speaks to this, is if you sin against someone, quickly and promptly seek forgiveness. If someone sins against you, seek to address that as soon as possible. That being said, allow the Spirit to work in your own life and that of, in that of your brother. God is the one who ultimately brings reconciliation, not you. Beyond that, rely on the Spirit of God through His Word. Seek discernment on when to allow love to cover up an offense, when to pray for your brother, when to confront your brother, and when to repent. Ultimately, allow the Word to do its work of confronting and crucifying sin within you, and that especially will strengthen your understanding. And as you deal with your brother and all his problems, remember too that God forgave you. God gave you forgiveness in an unbelievable, impossible way. God continues to bear with you, even though you have aspects of your sin of which you are unaware. God offered you forgiveness while you were still his enemy. So let that wholehearted commitment to forgiveness fill your whole life as a son of God. That's the grace that grounds you. That's the grace that allows you to stand. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand.